Welcome to UIDP Conversations, where we have candid discussions about partnership and collaboration across academia, industry, and government. I'm Sandy Ma with UIDP, and today I'm joined by Malcolm Skingle, Director of Academic Liaison for GlaxoSmithKline. He has also been a research leader in his own right and has authored more than 60 articles and publications, including perspectives on industry and university collaboration. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you. Well, we're going to start out by asking about your time at GSK because you have been directing GSK's academic liaison program for about 25 years. Is that correct? That's correct. So tell me a little bit about your or GSK's philosophy of university industry collaboration. Well, before I even looked after academic liaison, I used to run a research group in a neuroscience department. So for as long as I can remember, I have collaborated with universities around the world. Um, and then I had the opportunity to go into, which was then called technology transfer. Uh, and when I did that, I was setting up collaborations for many people across the organization. And it pretty much started with me and I shared a secretary with someone. Um, but actually over the years, it's become so important to the company. I've now got a team of 10 that do this. We broke around 600 agreements a year. Some of them are very small and hardly any cash at all, but some are, are multi-million dollar collaborations going across many disciplines sometimes even across several universities. So it's a big part of our business. And philosophically, why does GSK think it's a value? Because you, you have your own researchers. What is the value of doing these collaborations across with academia? Well, the, the whole basis of UIDP, of course, is, is on partnerships and collaboration. Um, collaboration for me is an absolute no-brainer. All of the technology-driven companies need to partner and they need to collaborate if they're going to survive in technology-driven areas. So there's not one single organization that I can think of that's big enough, either in uh, public or private sector, that will have all of the skills and all of the technologies that they require to address the really big scientific challenges. And the quote I always like in this space was, was that of um, Bill Joy from uh, Sun Microsystems, one of the co-founders. And he said, no matter who you are, most of the smartest people work for someone else. And that's pretty obvious when you think about it, but my own company, uh, GlaxoSmithKline, have got over 100,000 employees, and a good proportion of those are excellent world-leading scientists. But they can't possibly undertake all of the science that they need to innovate by working in isolation. We need to collaborate with other companies. We need to collaborate with biotech. We need, particularly need to uh, collaborate with academic groups if we're going to be successful in growing the company. When I think about it, every single research group in GSK will collaborate with at least one, if not more universities in order to get to the skills and technologies that they require to drive their um, projects forward. So you have been doing this for a while. What do you think are the key success elements of a good university industry partnership? I think the, the criteria, I mean, I think it's important to think uh, of the criteria that we use when we're putting collaborations in place. So is it a strategic fit to GSK? Is the quality of the science uh, in the proposal uh, world leading? Um, does the research lab have the, all of the facilities and the resources required to undertake that research? Um, there has to be a high likelihood of, 
uh, new useful information or technology arising from the collaboration, otherwise why are you doing it? Um, timing with respect to deliverables. So often my scientists will convince senior management that they can do something on a small budget, when actually if we use just a small budget to address the problem, we won't get the findings in time for our internal projects. So we have to think about that. Value for money obviously comes into it. And then one question we often ask is, does the academic see the value of the industrial input? Are they just taking the money and running? Um, because they have to see the value of the collaboration. Um, and then, of course, the, the academics should also think about uh, what they need when they're looking for a partner. So they should ask themselves, you know, is the industrial scientist likely to make a significant intellectual contribution to the project, which is 99 times out of 100, in my opinion? Uh, or are they just after the money? Does the company have a good track record for collaboration with academia? You can tell that by looking at the literature. Um, does the industrial science have access to knowledge or technology that's going to drive the academic research, which is often the case. Often people will get access to our proprietary molecules and platforms that will expand that bit of the science space. They'll publish. Then the whole scientific world will pick up on that if it's interesting and they'll expand that science space. But of course, we all tap into that. Um, so that's very much a, a, a virtuous circle. And then I'd always encourage universities to look at the scientific literature, look at the company's website, uh, look at the annual report, see the areas that they're in and actually do some due diligence before you actually come along to uh, a company with your idea. Well, you've mentioned the literature and you mentioned publications a few times. Is, is there still value in publishing? Because, I mean, that's the question that it has to be asked. Well, I, I think publications are obviously very important to the academics. Uh, there is a myth that um, industry are very secretive and we, and we don't publish. And, and last year at the UIDP Oxford conference, I made this point. There were, I've got the list of universities that were invited, Cambridge, Imperial, Oxford, uh, Cardiff from the UK, and then Leuven and Leiden, um, UC Davis, UC, UC San Diego, Northwestern, MIT, Georgia Tech, UC Irving. Um, and so I did a bibliometric analysis on all of those companies. And the, 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 the thing that they always look at is the field weighted citation impact index. Um, and so the average for a particular field is always set at one. Because all of those universities I just listed, they're all good universities. They all have an FWCI of greater than two. I have double the amount of citations of the, of the average for the field. And what you find is that those universities, when you look at the collaborations they've got with international partners, the FWC is higher, which doesn't surprise me at all because you've got laterally thinking people from different organisations who are contributing to the overall output. But the really interesting factor is when you look at those same universities that have collaborated with technology-driven companies like GSK, their FWCI is about three times higher on average. So the message there that has to get out to the academics is that actually if you want heavily cited papers, and it's in your interest to do that as an academic, then why don't you work with a technology-driven company? Um, just to the numbers, I've got the numbers written down here. The numbers. Uh, for GSK, when universities are selecting a partner, they should absolutely do their due diligence on these partners. So, and it completely blows away the myth that we don't publish. So between 2013 and 2019, 
GSK published or co-published 6,720 papers and had more than 110,000 citations with an average number of citations per paper of 16 and a half and an FWC CI of 2.02, which at that time was the equivalent to Oxford University. So we publish high quality papers. We are not driven to publish by anyone. We publish when we have something to say. It can't always be said for academics. Um, and so, yeah, public co-publish with a technology-driven company and you're going to get higher citations. That's a significant yardstick, I mean, for, for academics to think about industry, because there are still academics that hesitate to partner with industry. They don't think it's pure, um, that those sorts of things are still said in academic circles. But, uh, but, but the publication citation yardstick is one to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, the, the scientific challenges nowadays are so great that there isn't a single organisation that can address them. So you have to tap into multiple disciplines, multiple organisations. You need the, the diversity in order to innovate appropriately. Um, EDI, you know, equality, diversity, inclusion, so important in all walks of life. But I think it's particularly relevant in the research setting. If you have a diverse workforce, if you have a diverse set of collaborators, um, it allows you to tap into different ways of thinking, different skill sets. And this absolutely accelerates the, the innovation process. I've seen it on many, many occasions. Well, let's talk about some concerns and challenges then. From your point of view, what are the challenges or concerns around cross-sector collaboration that keep you up at night? Um, well, I sleep pretty well, thanks. And I don't think there's anything that's serious enough to keep me awake. Um, Nothing I think is particularly broken. I mean, obviously things are suboptimal, um, but I think nothing's broken in the industry academic interface, but there are challenges that we probably need to address. Um, and one of those that's been topical for me uh, in the last month or so is data integrity. And data integrity is certainly one of those things that could be tightened up in academia. Um, it's well documented. There are quite a few publications that the reproducibility of academic data has been an issue in the past. Um, industrial scientists have taken findings from academia and have struggled to repeat their published work and particularly uh, data relating to target ID, uh, target identification validation. And academics do not have the same level of rigor when collecting and curating data as we do in industry. That's a bit of a, a general statement, but I think for the most part it's true. And as a, as a principle, you should always be able to point to the source data and show you've come to your scientific published conclusions. In industry, we don't want to waste our money on experiments we have to repeat. So in industry, we have robust study design. We power all of our experiments, particularly those in using um, uh, humans or animals for sure, to ensure that we can test our hypothesis and ensure what is statistically significant or not. Um, and we often operate under the so-called Alcoa system, which you may or may not have heard of, but that helps us provide uh, an audit trial for data. If I always have to look up what Alcoa stands for, but it's attributable, legible, contemporaneous, original and accurate. And it's a term that was um, first coined by the FDA back in the 90s and then in, I think it's 2010, the acronym CCEA was added to the term, and this stands for Complete, Consistent, Enduring, and Available Data. 
And we look to include the Alcoa CCA data integrity language in any collaboration agreement where there's potential for the arising data to end up in an investigator brochure or any other regulatory paperwork. And some universities realise that this is an issue and they're trying to do something about it. But only last week I had a, a UK university phone me because they were looking to recruit someone from the regulatory space in industry to go into the university because they pulled not only their university but a consortium together to try and upgrade the level of uh, data integrity uh, practices in the academic space. And I think increasingly, um, particularly if work comes under question, it won't only be industry be driving greater data integrity, but it'll also be the funders because they want to see that they're getting bangs for their buck. Yeah, that's, that just goes to the integrity of the science in general. I mean, if you're doing research, you have to, it has to be re reproducible. It has to be accurate. Um, and, you know, in collaborations, I know that there's mutual learning back and forth, but do you see that industry and universities have things to teach one another when it comes to research collaboration? Do you see that flow going back and forth and, um, and enriching the process? Oh, of course. I mean, collaborations on contract research, we are not paying someone to do something without any intellectual contribution. There's a collaboration as well as an intellectual contribution from both parties. It's very much a two-way flow of uh, information. And it's not only platforms, techniques, and um, proprietary molecules that we might chip in, but it'd be help setting the specification on the experiments that are being undertaken. And I mean, I always liken it. When I left running a research group, I could give a talk in-house uh, and I would pretty much know the questions that were gonna be asked of me because we'd all be trained in the same way, we'd all think in the same way. I'd give the same lecture at a university and the question would come from left field and completely stump me. And you think, whoa, where did that come from? You need that lateral thought when you are um, actually kicking science around. You need to get to the scientific challenges, you need that lateral thought, you need the disparate thinking to get to the overall answer to the challenge. Well, you've been doing this for a while. Uh, where do you find the champions for innovative partnerships in your organization? Is it still a priority from the top or do you find it more dispersed? Um, over the years, um, and having done it for so long, there have been different management styles in our organization as, as things come and go and technologies and techniques come and go. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I would say that the internal champions are pretty much self-selecting. Um, an ideal internal champion would be scientifically sound and respected in the field. So, you know, even as a negotiator of academic contracts, I will introduce myself as a scientist and show that I'm credible in that space. I think it's no different when you have someone running a collaboration. Um, the internal champion needs to appreciate what the academic has to offer. Uh, they need to have good project management skills. They need to have good communication skills. Probably that's the, the number one uh, thing that they need. Um, they need to focus on the scientific objectives to make sure the project stays on track. But they also need to be very aware of what the academic wants to get from the collaboration because, and going back to publications, I mean, sometimes we actually write into contracts that the academic will write up the work in a um, given period of time. 
because sometimes they'll do the work they just want to get onto the next thing and they don't write it up so so yeah i mean they're pretty much self-selecting some programs have been top-down driven and if they're not accepted by the people at the coalface doing the research they go slightly less well whereas if you have a champion who is driving a program i would say there's there's just three things that you need for a collaboration at, at any level you need a budget obviously it's not going to run on thin air you need a program of research with clearly defined scientific deliverables um, so you can actually look at that one year in two years in to see where you are and whether or not you're you're tracking to that and then finally you need consenting adults you need people who are going to get on together work together and respect what each other are doing uh, in that program and if you have those three things doesn't matter if it's ten thousand or ten million um, it will work well thinking about the urgency of COVID-19 and the amount of work that has occurred just in the past seven or eight months can you tell us a little bit about your perspective about what this teaches us about cooperation between academia industry um, and our ability to really address issues when it needs to happen yeah um it's been impressive i mean if we just go to the bad side first i would say that obviously covid has um, put a few glitches into uh, the academic collaboration space i mean some of the universities furloughed some or all of the staff in their knowledge exchange offices so there were not enough people available to negotiate contracts on behalf of the university um, march the 16th my mum's birthday was our first day of lockdown when we were all working in our home offices and it's been pretty seamless for us um, because we've got good IT support, we've got good broadband. That wasn't always the case with some of the university staff, those that were still engaged but working at home. Um, some contracts have been negotiated and agreed. They've gone out for execution. Three months later we still haven't got them back, which is obviously a little bit frustrating for, for one reason or another. Um, Science being the international game that it is, many of the postdocs we support will travel from other countries outside the United Kingdom uh, and to a lesser extent the US. Um, and obviously there's a greater reluctance for scientists to travel overseas during the, the uh, COVID lockdown. So this has hampered some of our projects. And then I think from a financial perspective, universities are also feeling the pinch um, and they're looking to um, charge industry more for their collaborations to make up the shortfall that's caused by COVID. Many rely on overseas students fees, for example, in the UK. And obviously they, they will, they're looking like some universities are going to get less of those. And some universities are actually refusing to give accurate costings and they're just asking for an inflated amount of funding with no breakdown um, of the costings for a particular collaboration. This is less of an issue in the US, frankly, because in the US it's very open and transparent because you, the overhead recovery rates are published uh, openly. But in the UK, some universities won't give you that breakdown and it's getting to the stage with someone, frankly, where we'll walk away and we'll undertake a collaboration elsewhere because I need to justify those costs to my internal auditors and, and to my masters. So that's kind of on the, on the negative um, side of things. Obviously, some researchers on existing collaborative projects have started to get back into the lab and have stayed away in order to comply with social distancing. Some universities operate in shift basis, different times of the day or different days of the week. Um, what I will say about GSK, we've been very flexible and we work with universities on a case by case basis. So many bench scientists 
have taken the opportunity to write up existing experiments, write manuscripts for publication whilst working at home. Others have um, been encouraged, we've encouraged them to upskill in digital data analytics and many have taken additional training in, in lab downtime. Um, so on a case-by-case -case basis, we've allowed borrowing of funds from consumables, which aren't being spent sometimes because they're not in the labs, borrowing uh, it over to salaries so they can actually stay on board for longer. Um, and certainly in the UK, all of the PhD students, um, the UKRI, the big funding organisation in, in the UK, has already extended PhD stipends by an additional six months. And I'm sure that will be extended if, if uh, the pandemic goes on and on. So that was all the negative um, side of things, or the things that have been slightly challenging, not insurmountable, but challenging. Um, but then on to the good things. I mean, obviously the great things that have happened, if you can have anything great when people are dying of a horrible disease, um, the level of global cooperation has been truly impressive um, during the COVID pandemic. I mean, even back at the start of the year when the Chinese um, were quick in releasing the gene sequence information to the rest of the world that, that we could all tap into. Um, biotech, pharma and academia came together pretty quickly to sift through the, the science to see what might be useful in combating the disease. I'm one of my colleagues, actually sits on the UIDP, UIDP board, Keith Spencer. Keith and I sat on a, a team at GSK sifting new COVID related ideas coming in from biotech companies and all those from academia. And these range from uh, repurposed molecules, potential vaccine technologies, new diagnostics, and also engineering solutions for new ventilators or, or PPE, although we don't make it, we still seem to get a, a plethora of, uh, of requests coming in. Many of the academic groups, of course, were using inkjet printing to deliver much needed PPE. Um, and in the very first few weeks, um, there were a couple of uh, certainly the first couple of months, I should say, there are examples where universities stepped up to the plate and worked with the industry to move the science along very quickly. So, for example, Dundee University, they cloned all of the COVID proteins and made them available to researchers in pharma companies. And I certainly know that um, GSK were the recipients of several of those proteins for our internal essays. UCL worked with McLaren, one of our collaborators, the, the racing company, uh, to build a new ventilator which was used in uh, UCL hospitals. Um, one particularly um, excellent series of collaborations was around the UK Synchrotron Diamond. I chair their um, industrial advisory board and, and they do a lot of protein crystal structure work uh, with the Synchrotron. Uh, and they actually got the, the structures, some of the key COVID proteins, including the hook protein and the main protease. Uh, and then they work with academia in parallel to that and with some biotech scientists who focus on in silico design to identify molecules that covalently interact with the hook protein. And all this happened at such breakneck speed. It was, uh, it was truly impressive. And from a pharmaceutical perspective, a little bit outside the academic space, but one of the good things about the pandemic was the fact that uh, regulators pulled out all of the stops to get potential treatments through the regulatory process in quick order, both those in companies and all those, also those in academia. And it'd be absolutely wonderful if we could keep that mentality 
and that speed of response once we come through this pandemic. Well, that's one takeaway from that. Then, uh, any any global thoughts about what we can do going forward to harness some of this more open and rapid um, development for other big problems? I think we just have to keep the communication lines open. I think we have to have honest conversations about the things that truly matter. Um, I mean, it's always been my style, frankly, and I always encourage my team to do that. So you talk about the things that really matter up front rather than the, the boilerplate language that's in the back of an agreement that actually no one really cares about. Um, so you talk about who's going to do what and when. You're going to talk about um, the intellectual property perspective and who owns what. And people always think that Big Bad Pharma wants to own everything. Actually, we don't. Often we just need freedom to operate in a, in a certain area. And we gladly... Um, work with academics, sometimes even packaging IP so that they can better use it. Anything else that you'd like the, to add uh, so our UIDP audience and our community can walk away with a few Malcolm Skingle moments? Well, uh, I think I've said quite a lot already, but I would say that we are open for business. Um, certainly in the, in the UK, we have more academic collaborations uh, more than any other UK headquarter company um, in any sector. So that is um, obviously it's a well-trodden pathway for us. I see the value in it. I do it because I uh, I see the value in it for my organisation. And and I'm not only that. Every day I meet bright, motivated, interesting people, uh, and I absolutely get off on that. So, so yeah, we are open for business. Well, I believe that. I believe that very much. Thank you so much to Malcolm Skingle, Director of Academic Liaison for GlaxoSmithKline, for joining us today for UIDP Conversations. UIDP supports professionals at top-tier innovation companies and world-class universities build better partnerships. Learn more at UIDP.org.